gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Jelly's Last Jam. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. How are you doing, Cameron McIntosh? Hello, Cameron! I'm talking to you. Hi, this is Jonathan Pernasek, the musical man. You've never heard of me. I've heard of you. You've never heard of me. You're a billionaire. You're a billionaire titan of the West End. <laughs> Fuck you. That's how I want to start this opening segment. Patty, Benny, I know that some people get offended by explicit language, but Fuck you, Cameron McIntosh. Drop dead. It's your time. Your time is up. Do us all a favor and drop dead. Trans people are not gimmicks. Go fuck yourself, you walking bag of scarabs. Fuck off. You done. Oh boy. Okay, so. I think I got that out of my system. Oh, what else do I want to talk about? I, I, I thought that I would not start this episode on such a fierce note. Oh, yes, future queen! <laughs> Has anyone seen that clip from Cinderella? <laughs> yes, future queen! <laughs> Hashtag pandering! Oh boy, I I do enjoy Billy Porter, but he seems like he is trapped, trapped in that movie. All right, let's actually get down to business. I heard from listener Harry. Hello, listener Harry. Harry sent me an email and pointed me in the direction of the 2016 off-Broadway revival of Sweet Charity, which we discussed on the main feed recently, and that production starred Sutton Foster and an actor by the name of John. Joel Perez. Perez played four parts in this production. Charlie, Herman, Vittorio, and Daddy Brubeck of the Rhythm of Life Church. I'm pretty sure we never actually cited Daddy Brubeck by name. If anyone is confused by that, I don't remember you talking about that character. It's because... I did not carve out five seconds of time to <laughs> cite that character by name. I apologize. Anyway, did someone pull these characters out of a hat? One, two, three, four. What is the significance of this choice? And where the heck is the cast album for this off-Broadway production? Yes, to Sutton Foster? 
but no to cast album? Ah, come on, you're killing me. Put it on a record. Just do it. All shows deserve a cast album. I don't care. I don't care. If you do it, then you gotta produce the record. Speaking of Sutton Foster, I predict. I have a prediction. Huh? I'm wearing my Johnny Carson turban. Remember when he would wear the turban? I'm not really doing that because that seems problematic. Seems? Okay. Well, I have a prediction. Nonetheless, here it is. My prediction is that Sutton Foster's future co-star, Hugh Jackman, the star of Reminiscence. <laughs> Reminiscence on HBO Max? Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, I predict her future co-star, Hugh Jackman, will eventually be replaced by Christian Borle, Burl, 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 in the forthcoming revival of The Music Man. I would put money on it. I am typically not a gambling man, but I would gamble on this prediction. Cutching. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Let's get to the show facts regarding this week's subject. Jelly's last jam. Show me the show facts. Okay, fuck you, Cameron McIntyre. Gosh, let's do it. Jelly's Last Jam was a 1992 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on April 26, 1992 at the Virginia Theater and ran for 569 performances. The book was written by George C. Wolfe, and it is inspired by the life of Ferdinand Joseph Lamothe, a.k.a. Jelly Roll Morton. The stage version of Jelly goes by the name Ferdinand Lamenth Morton for the record. Wolfe also wrote the book for Shuffle Long or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed. The lyrics for Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk and he also directed Caroline or Change and The Wild Party on Broadway. He's all over our agenda, George C. Wolfe. The man's a juggernaut. The music was written by Jelly Roll Morton of course, but we also have additional music and musical adaptation and that credit goes to Luther Henderson. The lyrics were written by Susan Birkenhead, who you might know as the lyricist for shows like Working and Triumph of Love. She was also the general manager for Ain't Misbehavin'. I like that fact. The director of Jelly's Last Jam was George C. Wolf. Hello again, George. The musical director was Linda Twine. The choreographers were Hope Clark, Gregory Hines, and Ted L. Levy. Scenic design, Robin Wagner. Lighting design, Jules Fisher. Sound design, Otis Munderlow. Costume design, Tony Leslie James. And the original Broadway cast, oh, was as follows. We begin with Gregory Hines. Now, here's a fun fact about Gregory Hines. Gregory's first Broadway credit was in 1954, shortly after his eighth birthday, I believe, and that was the show The Girl in Pink Tights. Yes, I believe Hines played a shoeshine boy in that musical. You might also know Gregory Hines from his film credits, which include History of the World Part 1, Waiting to Excel, and The Preacher's Wife. Then we have Keith David, who has 339 television and film credits. If you think you've never heard the voice of Keith David, you are more than likely wrong. He has appeared in The Thing, nine episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Platoon, They Live, Roadhouse, Reality Bites, The Quick and the Dead, Disney's Gargoyles, for which he played the role of Goliath. He's in the English dub of Princess Mononoke, as well as Armageddon, There's Something About Mary, Disney 
Disney's Hercules. He plays Apollo in Disney's Hercules. But also, we have Pitch Black, Requiem for a Dream, Disney's House of Mouse. He was in one episode of House of Mouse, and he played Mufasa. That is fascinating to me. But we're not done. He also played the cat in Coraline. He's Dr. Fasselier in The Princess and the Frog. And if you watched The Cape on NBC, like me, you would know that he was in The Cape on NBC. Okay. <laughs> I love Keith David. He is all over TikTok as of this week. This is a very timely episode when it comes to the popularity of Keith David. I love that synergy, but we are in no way done when it comes to citing all of the wonderful people in this Broadway cast. We have Savion Glover, Stanley Wayne Mathis, Tanya Pinkins, who has, of course, appeared in past subjects like Caroline or Change and The Wild Party. You may also know Tanya Pinkins from Enchanted, her 16-episode streak on As the World Turns, or the 246 episodes of All My Children that are under her belt. I had no idea she did 246 episodes of All My Children, but now I know. This cast also includes Ken Ard, Adrian Bailey, Sherry D. Boone, Brandy Braxton, Mary Bond Davis, Ralph Deaton, Mamie Duncan Gibbs, Anne Ducanet, Melissa Hazlip, Cece Harshaw, Don Johansson, Ted L. Levy, Victory Gabriel Platt, Stephanie Pope, Gil Pritchett III, Michelle M. Robinson, Ruben Santiago Hudson, Gordon Joseph Weiss, and Allison M. Williams. That's it. That's the full cast, baby. When it comes to Tony nods, Jelly's Last Jam won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical, Gregory Hines, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Tanya Pinkins, and Best Lighting Design, Jules Fisher. The production was also nominated for the following Tony Awards. Best Musical, of course, but also Best Book of a Musical, George C. Wolfe. Best Original Score, Jelly Roll Morton, Susan Birkenhead, and Luther Henderson. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Keith David. Best Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner. Best Costume Design, Tony Leslie James. Best Choreography, Hope Clark, Gregory Hines, and Ted L. Levy. And finally, Best Direction of a Musical, George C. Wolfe. So, in total, da-da-da-da-da, doing my math, 11 nominations, 3 awards at the end of the evening. The following plot summary of Jelly's Last Jam is based on a reading of the original George C. Wolfe libretto, a.k.a. the book. Patty Benny, for this plot summary, can we actually have have a little bit of underscore. I'd like to hear some real Jelly Roll Morton music. This is known as Smokehouse Blues, and it is performed by Jelly Roll Morton and his band, the Red Hot Peppers. Let's hear that, if you please. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, the time period covered by Jelly's Last Jam begins in the 1890s and ends in 1941. Well, it technically begins and ends outside of time itself, but we'll get into that. The evening opens with the arrival of the Chimney Man, who steps through a door marked by Yoruba motifs. He is surrounded by a dark and limitless void, but as he describes the hero of our tale, the shadows peel away to reveal the rock 
Caucasus Jungle Inn. Side note, the Yoruba people live in several countries throughout Western Africa, including Nigeria, Benin, and Togo. Africa's population includes 35 million Yoruba. With a little help from the Honeys, chorus girls who are described as creatures by George C. Wolfe, the Chimney Man conjures up the spirit of Jelly Roll Morton, who has recently died. Jelly brags to and performs for the patrons of the Jungle Inn, completely oblivious to the fact that his grandmother, Grand Mimi, is mourning his death in the land of the living. The chimney man cuts Jelly down to size by forcing him to relive the breathless, horrible sensation of his passing. Jelly is not here to have a good time. He is here to account for his life, and the chimney man will not settle for a high-toned version of events. Side note, there is no way someone at Disney was not inspired by Keith David's performance as the Chimney Man when developing Dr. Fasselier for The Princess and the Frog. We're writing a musical set in New Orleans, and we need someone to play a man who moves between the world of the living and the land of the dead. Get Keith on the phone! He did this in the 90s! Another side note for you, The Honeys, as played by Mamie Duncan Gibbs, Stephanie Pope, and Allison M. Williams are very much in the tradition of Little Shop's street urchins and the fates who glide through Hadestown. Trios of women who both have a hand in and stand apart from the stories that employ them. Back to the plot, back to the plot, I say. The Chimney Man calls forth Ferdinand Lamenth Morton, otherwise known as Young Jelly. As the boy plays piano for his sisters in a posh New Orleans parlor, portraits of his Creole ancestors spring to life and offer strict instruction. Young Jelly is both Creole and Black, but the Morton family does not associate with Black people. Their way of life is that of the upstanding Creole, and Young Jelly must never forget this. Another side note, I know, so many side notes in this plot summary. What is it with ancestral portraits springing to life in musicals? We've seen this in Me and My Girl, as well as A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Does this happen in other musicals? Am I missing other examples? The ancestors are always so grumpy. I'm not criticizing the convention, I think it's fun. I just find it funny how it's in multiple shows. The steamy allure of the French Quarter proves too entire for young Jelly. He investigates its temptations at the behest of his older self, eventually crossing paths with a singer, Miss Mamie, and a musician, Buddy Bolden. Young Jelly is brought aboard to play piano for his new mentors and in the process becomes familiar with a style the world will come to know as jazz. Grand Mimi, having learned of her grandson's unseemly activities, slaps and banishes him from the family. You are not Creole! The elder Jelly objects to the inclusion of this scene, insisting it never happened, but the Chimney Man knows otherwise. You don't fuck with the Chimney Man, Jelly. Jelly and his longtime partner, Jack the Bear, reunite and reflect on the long road that led them to success. A montage ensues. Jelly and Jack play pool with tough guys, send shivers up the spines of a dance hall crowd, and eventually make it big in Chicago with the Red Hot Peppers, who you are hearing right now. 
right now. Fortune and fame have an immediate effect on Jelly. He proclaims himself to be the inventor of jazz and lies about his heritage, telling the press he is nothing less than 100% Creole. Jelly and Jack accept a gig in Calumet City only to show up late. The manager of the venue, Anita, is unimpressed by Jelly's flirtations and ridiculous displays of bravado. She makes a pass at Jack, which only makes Jelly want her more. Our hero's casual and cruel remarks make it clear he looks down on Jack for being dark-skinned. Anita ignores this red flag, and her affair with Jelly burns hot and bright over the next several months. There are good times, of course. Jelly opens his heart to Anita, tells her about Grand Mimi, and the lovers even open their own club, Jelly and Anita's Midnight Inn. But there are bad times as well, and the bad times eventually outweigh the good. Jelly's adulterous behavior inspires Anita to imply she's been sleeping with Jack. In retaliation, Jelly presents his one and only friend with a bright red doorman's jacket. According to Jelly, every respectable club needs a dark-skinned doorman, and the Midnight Inn should be no different. White people will expect nothing less. Jack laughs at first, as Jelly has made similarly morbid jokes in the past, but Jelly is not kidding around. Jack leaves in a state of total disbelief. Anita confesses she never slept with Jack, and it was wrong of her to say otherwise, but our hero, such as he is, has gone way too far this time. Jelly is left alone to perform for what Wolf describes as a, quote, chorus of coons, quote, white-lipped black dancers who sport doorman uniforms. Jelly's routine becomes frenzied and furious as the Chimney Man summons the faces of those who loved him. Grand Mimi, Jack, Anita, you've already lost so much, Jelly. What else are you willing to lose? Act 2. The Chimney Man has a question on his mind. Is Jelly Roll Morton really the inventor of jazz as he claims? Jelly refuses to believe otherwise. He mocks the blues artists who came before him and declares it was he who, quote, took the shit and made it sore, quote. The Chimney Man grows weary of such talk and opts to investigate another chapter of our hero's life. Jelly, having left Chicago behind, lands in New York City with a surplus of confidence. But the uptown crowd only has eyes for Armstrong, Ellington, and Basie, and the downtown music publishers are little more than gangsters. Here's another Big Apple reality, actual gangsters! They own every club in town and make it clear to Jelly he will not play anywhere or anything without their permission. Our hero makes an attempt to flaunt his Creole heritage, but to these gangsters, he's just another black man. Jelly manages to find comfort and confidence by dancing with his younger self, but those warm feelings are swiftly dispelled by the Ripley's Believe It or Not radio program. Those Ripley boys think W.C. Hardy was the inventor of jazz, of all the people! Our hero returns to Illinois and finds Anita running a small restaurant. Could a reconciliation be on the menu? Nope! The appearance of Jack the Bear causes Jelly to revert right back to his jealous, racist ways, and he manages to alienate himself in record time. The Chimney Man has seen a lot of people at their lowest, but Jelly's behavior is truly a sight to behold. We suddenly find ourselves on Central Avenue in Los Angeles, where Jelly has been cornered by violent zoot suitors. Our hero is 
stabbed. He screams in agony, gasps for air, and dies in the colored wing of L.A. County General. Time has run out. There are no more scenes to review, no more decisions to regret. The Chimney Man produces a procession of the dead, quote, an otherworldly New Orleans African parade of death that comes to claim Jelly's soul, quote. The Chimney Man picks up a large broom and proceeds to sweep the procession so that it may engulf Jelly. Grand Mimi sprinkles rose petals on her grandson's head. The sins of Jelly's past overwhelm and consume him, and it is in this moment he realizes how wrong he has been. He embraces his black heritage and the black people who informed every moment of his life. As a result, the procession of the dead transforms into an old-fashioned New Orleans funeral band, and Jelly is allowed to walk through the Yoruba door, first seen at the top of Act 1. But let's circle back to the Chimney Man's question. We have finished our plot summary, but I have a question. Historically speaking, what is the general consensus regarding the real Jelly Roll Morton and his relationship to jazz? Did he or did he not invent the genre as he so often claimed? Most historians agree Jelly was one of the first jazz musicians, if not the first jazz musician, to put their songs to paper and have them published. On top of that, his early contributions to the form were so numerous and so influential that many have chosen to give him the benefit of the doubt. Jelly Roll Morton, the inventor of jazz? Sure, why not? For the purposes of this week's episode, I began by listening to Birth of the Hot, the classic Chicago Red Hot Peppers sessions from 1926 and 1927. I very much enjoyed my time with this album. I just wanted to get a sense of the real Jelly Roll Morton's style, and I was satisfied. This album gave me the education I needed before I dipped into the rest of this week's sources, which include the 1992 original Broadway cast album, of course, as well as the 1992 libretto or book by George C. Wolfe. The introduction by John Lahr, a longtime theater critic for The New Yorker, he wrote the introduction to this published version of the libretto. Okay, this introduction is tiresome. He is trying to say, he is trying to say, that while most modern musicals are either silly and brain-dead or gruesome and brain-dead, Jelly's Last Jam is the rare example of a musical that is both entertaining and insightful. Oh, and nobody makes shows about America anymore. These opinions would be easier to process if not for Lars glaring contradictions, confounding examples, and a writing style that amounts to little more than word salad. Yuck. Allow me to quote him directly. Patty Benny, can we actually get some more Red Hot Peppers music? I would like to hear Grandpa's spells underneath this critique of mine. Can we do that? Thank you in advance. John Lahr 
begins his introduction by saying, when you're talking about the American musical, you're talking Broadway religion, the salvation of applause, the beatification of the bottom line, the gospel of good times. This faith has been sorely tested over the last generation, and the musical has gone into the wilderness. What America is the new musical singing about? Vietnam put paid to legends of abundance and righteousness, which were formerly the musical's manifest destiny. If you heard that sentence and thought, what the fuck are you talking about? Okay, the phrase put paid to is a phrase I've never heard of, I had never heard of until this week, but it means to finish or destroy. In other words, Vietnam destroyed our legends of abundance, etc., yada yada yada. Okay, back to the introduction. The musical lost confidence in its content, its form, its audience, and its country. German fairy tales, French pointillism, Victorian England, 1930s Berlin. Many of the most celebrated recent musicals seem prepared to sing about anything but America. Hello, it's me again, Jonathan Pernasek. Now remember, John Law wrote this in 1993 or thereabouts, so when he talks about recent musicals, he's talking about Into the Woods from 1987, Sunday in the Park with George from 1984, a Victorian England musical I assume is Sweeney Todd, so that's from 1979, and Cabaret, that's our Berlin 1930s musical from 1970. 66. Wait, no, that doesn't make any sense. I realize this now. He is obviously talking about Grand Hotel, right? Okay, so to review, Lars' survey of the troubled musical landscape includes three, three Stephen Sondheim shows and Grand Hotel. Okay, well... Uh, a few examples of American musicals that premiered between 1980 and 1992. Here we go. Barnum, 42nd Street, Tin Types, Woman of the Year, Dream Girls, Pump Boys and Dinettes, Baby, The Tap Dance Kid, Big River, Grind, Leader of the Pack, Quilters, Big Deal, Rags, City of Angels, Meet Me in St. Louis, Falsettos, I realize a number of these shows do not cast America in the best of light, but they are definitely about America. Well, sure, but were they celebrated for being American? <laughs> Stop it! This is just like that. They don't make movies like this anymore, malarkey. I hate that shit. I'm sorry you find so little value in the form. That must be miserable for you. Okay, okay, back to quoting John Lahr. We're not done yet. In the heyday of America's world power, musicals gave the society legends of triumph. Now, in the society's retreat from power, the musical is making legends of collapse. The musical was fun before it was art, but give or take a few blips of buoyancy, hair, a chorus line, Chicago, anxiety has become the new abundance. It's me again, Jonathan. I would argue there's plenty of anxiety in all three of these shows. Hair, A Chorus Line, Chicago, but whatever. Hair also spends a great deal of time criticizing the Vietnam War and America's role in said war, which is the sort of thing Lar claims to despise. Uh, too negative. And yet Hair is being cast as a blip of buoyancy, 
Whatever, back to the introduction, the musical, like the winded culture it reflects, seems at a loss to know what or how to celebrate. Pluck in loathing has replaced pluck in luck as the prevailing credo, the delirium of hope giving way to the delirium of despair. The more he bleeds, the more he lives, he never forgets and he never forgives, chants the chorus about the demon barber of Fleet Street in Stephen Sondheim's masterpiece, Sweeney Todd. Oh, okay, so hi, Jonathan again. Sweeney Todd is a masterpiece now? I'll adjust my calculations accordingly. Da da do da da. Back to John Lahr. The lines could be the epitaph of the blasted hopes and lucid doubts that the paying customers have been asked to applaud in these wilderness years where joy has been banished from the contemporary musical's definition of maturity. Ah, Jonathan again. Can you tell this guy wrote for the New Yorker? How many times are you going a call back to the wilderness metaphor, John. You said it twice, are you gonna say it again? He doesn't. <laughs> Jumping ahead in this introduction, to relive your past without pain is a lie, says the chimney man, the deus ex machina in this all-singing, all-dancing last judgment, as he indicts Jelly Roll Morton for a moral amnesia that mirrors the commercial musical's practice of removing pain for gain. Jelly's last jam shows what it means to properly stimulate an audience instead of tickling it to death. Jonathan again, but I thought nearly every musical of the modern age was a po-faced Icelandic funeral dirge. What happened to your original thesis? The Chimney Man is 100% not a deus ex machina, by the way. He does not appear in the last moments of the show for the very first time. He does not rescue Jelly from a seemingly hopeless situation. Jelly saves himself. Ebenezer Scrooge style. Thank you very much. You don't know what you're talking about. Jumping ahead in this introduction, the defiance in Miss Mamie's voice echoes the defiance in Jelly's last jam, which wants a mass communication, but unlike the influential musicals of Sondheim and his imitators, doesn't disdain the mass. Jonathan again, hello! So now we're saying Stephen Sondheim hates the masses? Is Sweeney Todd still a masterpiece at this point in the introduction? I can't keep up with the objections of this half-rate Andy Rooney. Ah. If you think we're done, we're not. Jumping ahead in the introduction, a smart lyric in the mouth of a stick-figure character is a theatrical nothing-burger. Uh, Jonathan again, nothing-burger? We're using the word nothing burger. <laughs> Jumping ahead even further, a number of black shows from Ain't Misbehavin' to Bubbling Brown Sugar to Five Guys Named Mo have brought black music and black talent to Broadway, but refused to put the ravishing energy in a proper historical context. The shows are another form of shucking, what George C. Wolfe calls, quote, cultural strip mining. Quote, that robs black expression of both context and ideas. This is me again, Jonathan. I promise to you that was the last you will hear from John Lahr, but I need to wrap this up by saying it's one thing for a black artist like George Seawolf to dismiss shows like Bubbling Brown Sugar and Ain't Misbehavin'. I do not agree with the dismissal, but I would much rather listen to Wolf over the likes of a white 
theater critic like John Lahr. Lahr seems quite eager to align himself with Wolf here, and it's embarrassing. Oh, me too, Mr. Wolf. I feel the exact same way, no doubt about it. Those other black musicals cannot hold a candle to your black musical. Those fools are shucking to a minstrel melody. Say that to the faces of the black people who worked on those shows, John Lahr. How can you claim to be a fan of Jelly's last jam while sounding exactly like Jelly Roll at his worst? Well, there's black and then there's black. Fuck off. I realize this is ironic, my slamming a white man for throwing his intellectual weight around, but the slamming must be done. Come on and slam, and welcome to the jam. Ah, Jelly's last jam. Ah. I don't understand why George C. Wolfe did not write his own introduction for this script. We really needed John Lahr for this assignment. No, wrong, incorrect. I'm John Lahr. Oh. I'm John Lahr. My father is Bert Lahr, the cowardly lion. Ever heard of him? That's true. He is the son of Bert Lahr. <laughs> Good for him! And finally, I watched the 1992 Tony Awards performance of the song, That's How You Jazz. Was I naive to assume Gregory Hines would actually play the piano while performing as Jelly? Because he is obviously not playing the piano, and it's distracting. I understand this is no small thing I am asking for, but playing the piano was sort of Jelly Roll's whole thing. It's sort of his brand, if you know what I mean. I love you, Gregory Hines. You were taken from us way too soon, but I've seen better object work in improv scenes. I just want to throw that out there. Let's talk about the score. Okay, let's go. I'm telling you, in my day, this man was made of money. Come on, Shelly, tell us. You know it, yeah, in my day, these hands were dripping the honey. I'd flash them that savoir fan and toss them a smile. What your folks call style, I used to call the high tone. The who's that? The high you learn to use. In my day, this man came up with a sound. And incidentally, in my day, it got to getting around. Yeah, as good as that Mr. Mozart would have tipped his hat Believe me when I say That I was something in my day Really something in my day They called them Creole boys We'd pop with jelly joy Of how that hard loving daddy could play How they can get a man Could roll like no one can And squeeze your little, tease your little troubles of the American Theatre Wing seminar dedicated to the production of Jelly's Last Jam. It's on YouTube, and I did my level best to get through it, but the entire panel was white, 
and boring, and I had better things to do with my time, okay? But I did not walk away empty-headed. No, no, no. Here's something I learned. Gregory Hines was initially set to direct this week's subject. He was never meant to appear in it, but the role of Jelly was simply too good to pass up. Hines also wanted to be associated with a character, much like Robert Preston and Zero Mostel came to be associated with Harold Hill and Tevye. Jelly's last jam may not have secured the ubiquity of The Music Man or Fiddler on the Roof, but Hines did succeed when it came to making this character his own. Jelly's first solo, In My Day, proves to be a smashing success for Hines. He is a star through and through, but at the same time, he's not allowing his star power to get in front of, in the way of, the material. Hines respects the script and the score, which makes me want to lean in and and appreciate every word. I'm also here to stump for Heinz's voice, which can be bold and direct, but also affected by a tremulous sensitivity. These characteristics are very much in keeping with the soul of the character, with the brass and the braggadocio doing everything it can to cover up the fear. This is rock-solid work, Mr. Heinz. I know I was criticizing your object work, but you're a star. You don't need me to tell you that, of course. outside these parlor walls, a symphony of sound ready to be orchestrated, syncopated, and they're all waiting on you. Yard girls everywhere. Spasm band. Lady with the gumbo pain. Brick dust lady. Jennifix man and Gator man. Make your song.
hate to repeat myself on this show, but here I go once more unto the breach. I adore a marketplace sequence in a musical. Pull back the camera and show me the macro view of your universe. Offer me hints of stories and lives I'll never have time to explore. Rags has Penny a tune. Oliver has Who Will Buy. Beauty and the Beast has Belle. And Jelly's Last Jam has The Whole World's Waiting to Sing Your Song. Every number on this list includes some guy singing about pots and pans, and may the Lord take me if I ever get sick of that. Pots, pans, beads, bread, fresh fish, we catch them, you buy them. The whole world's waiting to sing your song does an excellent job of filling out the New Orleans landscape painted by Wolf, Birkenhead, Morton, and Henderson. The ragged voices that cut through the heat of the night form a choir of beautiful chaos. Who could blame young Jelly for throwing the door open and making himself at home in the French Quarter? I want some of that gumbo. I want to talk to the root man. Get away, ball. Won't you away from my door?
Ducane has one major opportunity to dig into the role of Grand Mimi, and you better believe she is making the most out of it. The anger expressed throughout the banishment is sharply defined and arresting. Ducane is mining this character's puritanical fury for all it is worth, so why not give her other angles to play? Why is there so little emotional shading within these lyrics? Hello, Miss Birkenhead, it's me, the musical man. We know from scene one that Grand Mimi attends her grandson's funeral, which means she never forgot about or stopped loving him. Tossing Jelly into the street was not an easy decision, and I find it strange how the banishment would imply otherwise. Where is the struggle, the hesitation, the ebb and the flow? True, Grand Mimi is allowed to express a little regret near the end of the show, but that is a classic case of too little, too late. Why force Anne Ducanet to whip up a single dish when she can produce the contents of the entire cookbook? Do not limit her options, is what I am saying. Oh, that tune strips, strips along, just like it owns a song. And then you hit it with a find it funny how Gregory Hines went out of his way to turn Jelly Roll Morton into a first-rate tap dancer? I Look, I understand we need to see Hines in his element. We have to give him time and space to tap those tootsies. Yes, agreed. We are in agreement. But at the same time, this is a laughably obvious self-serving decision. Would Jelly be walking on a high wire if Hines knew how to walk on a high wire? Setting aside my silly commentary, I'm being facetious. There is no substitute for watching Hines execute these tap steps. I know this to be true because listening to him execute those steps on a cast album was a snooze fest. I have to see the smile on his face, the light in his eyes that seems to say, holy crap, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. The feet may do all of the work, but a performer's expression is what makes the effort worthwhile. She thinks he's also yes, so light by fuse. He thinks she's Boy, Lovin' is a fuck you blues is one hell of a lyric from Susan Birkenhead. That shit makes me sweat and look over my shoulder. I am tugging on my collar over here. Lovin' is a fuck you blues. My God, that's the sort of lyric that sneaks up on you with bourbon on its breath. Ugh, Lovin' is a fuck you blues. Ah, give me your wallet. How to play 
like folks down in Orleans Way Show you the stylish fingers they have Ooh, what a noise they make Stop till the windows shake Folks mixing, come on and get your licks in Ooh to offer when it comes to the song Too Late Daddy, but I know this much, the ensemble of Jelly's last jam coheres and pays out in a way most productions can only dream of and they deserve to be showcased in this episode. Ah, ah, fantastic work. Everybody is doing great. Two thumbs up. Go on, play, play on tune. Gentlemen, the name is Nick and Gus. You play, you play for us. <laughs> we tell you what and who you'll be playing for. Well, so to speak, your patrons of the arts. Like we <laughs> said. Play a tune, Mr. Piano Man. Play any club or hall. Guess what? We own them all. <laughs> you wanna make it big here? Sit down, we'll talk. Sit down, we'll talk. Jelly, listen, let me give you a piece of advice. Oh, you be out of here yesterday. You step on someone's feet, and nigga, you don't eat. Now you listen and listen good. I'm not some woolly-headed coon dancing and catching coins on a street corner. When you're prepared to deal with me as a Creole, that's when we'll talk. What's he talking about? Creole schmeel. There's kikes, niggas, and wops. I leave anyone out? Nope. That's, That's the, the way, way we, we do things in New York. York. The clip you just heard is from a track known as That's the Way We Do Things in New York. And my question is, why do 
the gangsters sound like Muppets. It's not like they have jokes. I don't think they're meant to be funny, so why are we trying to goose this? Why are we trying to make them funny when there's nothing inherently comedic about them? Are we not meant to view the gangsters as intimidating? Because everything they say seems as if it's supposed to be scary and intimidating. I'm not a fan of the choices we're making here, is what I'm saying. Two thumbs down regarding the choices as they relate to the gangsters. Nope, not interested in the Muppets. No, thank you. <laughs> no. Uh, I don't need it. I'm the one you sports can't wait to see. If you're talking jazz, you're talking me. Gonna turn this city. Everywhere he turns. clubs to the raunchiest dive. right by you. You're too late, Daddy. We're swinging to a whole new sound. Door slam. Door slam. You step on someone's feet. And nigga, you don't eat. Sit down. We'll talk. Sit down. We'll talk. Sit down. We'll talk. No one has a voice like Keith David. Keith David talks and the whole world listens. There is a great deal of comfort to be found in those black and blue thundercloud tones, and I'm happy to report we will hear them on Broadway again starting October 31st of this year. Thoughts of a Colored Man by Keenan Scott at the John Golden Theater. Get your tickets now, I advise you. David is totally in the pocket throughout this reprise of a number known as Good Good old New York. The Chimney Man is transmuting every disappointment from Jelly's life into a bitter skull gray pill. And loving every minute of it, I might add. Do I want the Chimney Man to appear when I am on my deathbed? If he sounds like Keith David, sure. Yes, why not? Bring it on. Note to self, find out if Keith David has worked on any audiobooks. There's no way that man has not done audiobooks. I want to hear him. I do wish that this week's subject gave David more of an opportunity to really let loose vocally. The Chimney Man is popping up in nearly every scene throughout this show, but he doesn't have a big song, capital B, capital S, big song. Alas, he needs one. Jelly, it's funny, huh? <laughs> Us getting back together after all these years. You, me, Anita. Uh, so, what can I get you? Me and sweet Anita got ourselves a cooking jelly. The man can throw down a mean batch of red beans, huh? Jack, when are you gonna realize that the only thing a nigga can do for me is scrub my steps and shine my shoes? Why, Jelly? 
Was I a nigga when we was on the road together? Why? Was I a nigga when no matter what you said or did, I was by your side saying, Go, Jelly Man. I'm with you. All the way. Call me a nigga again and I'm gonna kick your ass. Jack. Jack, wait. Jack, please wait. Jack! Jack! Thank heavens Gregory Hines got a bee in his bonnet about playing Jelly Roll Morton, because here's the thing about Jelly, he is not especially likable. I don't know if you got that sense from the plot summary, but Hines, Gregory Hines, super likable. Impossible to dislike, one might venture. When Jelly is at his worst, Hines does everything he can to remind us of the pain that informs the character's actions, and in doing so, he makes Jelly hard to dismiss. In the scene you just heard, which is officially known as The Last Chance, the chimney man is heard to ask, why, Jelly? Why? His question is our question. We would not bother to ask it if we believed this man was beyond redemption. We want Jelly to do better and be better, which is a credit to Hines and his wonderful performance. Does anyone else associate Gregory Hines with Robert Townsend? Both fatherly figures with gentle, inquisitive eyes. Am I crazy? I say they're two of a kind. I like to pair them in my mind is what I like to do. Armstrong. Go forth, Ellington. Go forth, Basie, Bolden, and Bichet. Go forth, Morton.
Are the Rhythms That Color Your Song is a slam dunk of a finale that nearly pushed me over the edge and into a lake of tears. The company sounds fantastic, and are you kidding me with that diminishing piano line? We are moving out of the physical realm and into that of the eternal, and we are doing it on the back of this humble and deeply affecting piano line. I listened to this cast album twice this week, and let me tell you the extra time was worth it. Okay, that's all I have to say regarding the score of Jelly's Last Jam. Normally, this would be the time where we hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but we recently had a patron move from the $1 a month tier to the $5 a month tier. That patron is Jason, and Jason is entitled to a musical shout-out. That's true. So we're going to do that now. Take it away. Musical shout-out. It's me, Uncle Fester, from the 1964 black and white television series, The Addams Family. Oh, ha, ha, oh, oh, hello. Listen, Jason, we couldn't get Uncle Fester from the 2010 Broadway musical. Nyak, nyak, nyak. I'm sorry, we're sorry, but here's what we're going to offer you. We're going to offer you three Uncle Festers for the price of one, starting with me, Uncle Fester. Now, as you know, Uncle Fester, who is me, is in love with the moon. Oh, I love the moon, and I'm gonna sing a song for you that's about the moon. Jason, I hope you appreciate this. Oh, moon river, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. Nyuck, nyuck, nyuck. Oh, dream maker, you heartbreaker, wherever you're going, I'm going your way. La, 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 la. I like to say la, la, la sometimes. Here's a fun fact about Uncle Festia. Yeah, I was born on Friday the 13th, and my bassinet was an open grave. Ah, I'm going to hand it over to the second Uncle Festa. Take it away, Uncle Festa number two. It's me, Uncle Festa, from the 1991 live-action Adam's family film. Uh, hello there, Jason. I have a moon song for you that's gonna be fantastic. Once in your life you find her. Oh, someone who turns your heart around my neck. Next thing you know, you're closing down the town. <laughs> when you get caught between the moon and New York City. Oh, Roger Rabbit, I know it's crazy. I'm crazy. But it's true, oh, oh, if you get caught between the moon and New York City, what a run, the best that you can do, the best that you can do is fall in love, la 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 la, here's a fun fact about me, Uncle Fester, I'm wearing a diaper made out of spider eggs, oh, all right, it's time for Uncle Festa number three. Take it away. Take it away. Oh, thank you very much. It's me, Uncle Festa, from the 2019 Adams Family Animated Movie. I'm going to sing one more moon song for you, and I hope you really like it. Oh, 
Oh, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Oh, wow. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, ah, that's amore. Bells will ring, ting-a-ling-a-ling, la-la-la-la-la. Here's another Uncle Festa fact for you. Slender Man is my psychiatrist, and we do not get along. Wow, Jason, oh, thank you for raising your donation. Oh, thank you very much. But now we gotta take a nap. Isn't that right, Uncle Festa? Oh, that's right. Isn't that right, Uncle Festa? Knock, knock, knock. Yeah, that is right. Oh, gotta go. Gotta go. Gotta go. Final thoughts regarding Jelly's Last Jam. I made a joke about this a while back. You probably don't remember. But George Seawolf's interpretation of the Jelly Roll biography is basically a Christmas carol by way of the French Quarter. Let's look at the facts. Ebenezer Scrooge and Jelly Roll Morton look down on nearly everyone. They lie to themselves constantly, believing they are respected, if not beloved. Their childhoods were crummy. Their romantic lives are disasters, and their only real concern is material success. We know this to be true because ghosts from the past tell them as much. And just as these men are about to be swallowed up by the great gaping maw of the accursed devil himself, they cry out for and achieve salvation. God bless us, everyone. Hashtag same. Now, in 1992, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was past subject Crazy For You, and the other nominees that season were Falsettos and Five Guys Named Mo, two shows we have cited in this episode. Now, I am here to say that Falsettos should have taken the Tony Award for Best Musical. There is no way I did not say that in the Crazy For You episode, right? I don't remember. It feels like that was a thousand years ago. Let's rank Jelly's Last Jam against all of the other shows we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to take a look at this complete ranking, all you need to do is find our spreadsheet. How do I find the spreadsheet? Well, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. You'll find our link tree. Go to the spreadsheet. It's on the second tab. Okay, I made a lot of changes, actually. Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk is now sitting at number 40 in our ranking. Sunset Boulevard took a big leap up. It is now number 45. Jelly's Last Jam is sitting comfortably between The Lion King at number 52 and On the 20th Century at number 54, which of course means Jelly's Last Jam is number 53. I should have I should have led with that. Kinky Boots has been moved to number 56 and City of Angels has been moved to number 57. They are neighbors. Those are the only changes I believe I wanted to report. Every now and then we like to move things around my mind. Oh, my mind. It changes sometimes. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I would like to offer you a few samples from that album I mentioned earlier, that album being Birth of the Hot, the classic Chicago Red Hot Peppers sessions from 1926 and 1927. These were recorded as part of Jelly's contract with the Victor Talking Machine Company. The group included Kid Ori, Homer Simeon, George Mitchell, Johnny St. Cyr, Barney Biggard, Johnny Dodds, Baby Dodds, and Andrew Hilaire. How did I not notice that one of them is named Baby Dodds? What a name. I love it. Okay, so we are going to hear, first we are going to hear Hyena Stomp. Let's hear Hyena Stomp. That's terrible. 
Now let's hear Billy Goat stomp. Man, take that goat out of here. I would like to hear a little bit of Wolverine Blues, bub. two additional pieces of show-related ephemera for you. The first is a 1979 Schlitz malt liquor commercial, which features Gregory Hines and vocals from Nell Carter. You know how much I like Nell Carter. Can we get that commercial now, Patty and Benny? Hi, chap. You sure did it tonight. Yeah, and all we gonna celebrate. <laughs> Beer? He's the chap, you chump. We want something special. Whoa. The Schlitz Malt Liquor Bowl. It's a special premium brew that's in a class by itself. This Schlitz Malt Liquor's a bold brew. Let's go a few rounds with the bull. If you want to change up, Patty and Benny, I haven't given you the credit you deserve. I haven't said hello to you throughout this entire episode. What the fuck is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? You're fantastic. Would you please now play this 1990s total serial commercial in which Gregory Hines, wait for it, tap dances. Are you shocked? Play it. I've been dancing all my life, and to do it right takes 100%. It's not just eating right or exercise. It's the way it all comes together. It's the total effect. And for me, it starts with total. No other leading cereal gives you 100% of 10 vitamins and minerals to help you feel healthy, vital, and alive. Because putting 100% in here could have a total effect on what you do out there. Total. Total Raisin Bran. Total Corn Flakes. Get the total effect. 
Ooh, I was getting very bossy just then with the play it. Play it! That's not how I mean to be, Patty and Benny. You know that I love and respect you. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Those FBI Are M.I.A. Everyone ready? Then away we go. main feed subject is a 2009 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 733 performances, and the name of that show is Next to Normal. Now, coincidentally, Jason, the patron who recently moved from the $1 a month tier to the $5 a month tier, he selected this show as a newly minted $5 a month patron, and we already had it on deck. It was already scheduled to be our next episode. Ah, not to worry, though, I have spoken to Jason, and his official pick will be announced at the end of that Next to Normal episode. I will not spoil it for you now. Oh, what show did he pick? I'm not telling you. Speaking of Patreon, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Okra Project. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. Let's say you donate one dollar a month. Well, if you do, you'll get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You will also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher Neal, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 13 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Alive, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, but also Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, and the trailer for Steven Spielberg's Adaptation of West Side Story. We just announced via Twitter that we have two more bonus episodes planned for the very near future. We will be talking about the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, as well as Diana, the musical, which is going to premiere on October 1st. Those are coming up, so keep an eye out, all right? But we're not done with the $1 a month tier. $1 a month donors also get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a show for which I check in with myself via the songs that make me feel more like myself, non-musical theater songs, I should say. And finally, we are producing new episodes of M3, The Movie Musical Man. We just released our 10th episode, and we are prepping the 11th episode right now. Now, this is a show all about movie musicals, trios of movie musicals, actually, that are tied by a common theme. We did the Stone Cold Classics trilogy, The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, and The Umbrellas of Shabur. The Go Off trilogy, which was a trilogy all about off-Broadway adaptations, 
hands, had to end the Angry Inch the last five years and stuck. Ah, the Shiver Me Timbers trilogy, otherwise known as the Pirate Trilogy. That was the Pirate, the Pirate Movie, and Muppet Treasure Island. We did the Toon Trilogy, Gay Paree, Anastasia, and Ugly Dolls. We followed that up with the Holly Jolly Trilogy, Scrooge, Mrs. Santa Claus, and Anna and the Apocalypse. Don't forget about the R&R Trilogy, otherwise known as the Rock and Roll Trilogy. Phantom of the Paradise, Voyage of the Rock Aliens, and Camp Rock. The Apocryphal Bio Trilogy. Oh, biographical movie musicals. That trio was made up of Star, The Greatest Showman, and Rocket Man. Then we did the Sherman Brothers Trilogy, Mary Poppins, The Happiest Millionaire, and Charlotte's Web. The Ooh La La Trilogy. Ooh, sexy movie musicals. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Moulin Rouge, and Hello Again. And finally, our most recent episode was the Around the World Trilogy, non-English language movie musicals, Black Orpheus, Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India, and Eight Women. What is our 11th episode going to be called? Ah, it's going to be known as the Teens Are All Right Trilogy. That is dropping Wednesday, September 29th, and that episode will see us discussing Starstruck, Sing Street, and Valley Girl. But what if you donate $3 a month? Well, you get everything I've already described, plus you get a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. That's what we did for Jason. Jason wanted to hear from Uncle Fester, and Jason heard from three Uncle Festers. Ah, what a deal. You also get season one, ten episodes of Wildcats Everywhere. That's our podcast dedicated to the high school musical franchise. And you also get a special one-off episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. Five dollars a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. Jason has made his selection. We are not telling you right now. Now, you also get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You get access to my Broadway and Chicago review series and Shout About It, volumes one and two. Those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, season one, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, which is all about Broadway musicals that were snubbed. They were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. And finally, you also get access to the first six episodes of Turn It Off, which is a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. We have talked about Emoji Land, Soft Power, The Fantastics, We Are the Tigers, Bat Boy, and A Strange Loop. We have six more episodes coming your way. What are they going to be about? I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. Not right now. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We want 65-star reviews. We have 50. We have been stuck at 50 for quite some time. It's very frustrating. You have no idea. I am very frustrated. Come on. Ah, if you like the show, you better write a review. Once we get to 65, star reviews, I should say. I will produce a special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise, so if you want to hear that episode but you haven't done the work of writing the review, you should do the work! Work, future queen! Yes, future queen! Oh boy. If you're streaming the show, you're probably doing it through Spotify, Stitcher, or Audible. You can also do it through Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod 
Pod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Ah! You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Vita Shen, and good night. <laughs>